Hello everyone, this is Randy Kim, host and producer of the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. I hope you're all staying safe during this difficult time of the COVID-19 crisis. In continuing the theme 1975 for the second season, I interviewed Kim Ray Kun, a 1.5 generation Cambodian American from the Chicagoland area. Back in 2017, she became the first Cambodian American woman elected into public office as a board member for the Skokie Park District. Kim also serves as the board president for the National Cambodian Heritage Museum in the Chicago Lincoln Square neighborhood, which is how we met several years ago when I joined as a board member. In this interview, she talks about the difficulties in navigating through her Cambodian American identity, her motivation to get involved in community and civic engagement, her recent lessons she's learned from running and being an elected official, and what she hopes to impart to women of color and to her own children. I hope you enjoy this episode, as well as the other episodes on this podcast. Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnam-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pen, hoodie, or t-shirt, and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle or on their Facebook page. Hello, everyone. This is Randy from the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. So I am here today with my good friend and colleague, Kemare Kun, who I knew uh, about several years ago through our work with the Cambodian Museum, or otherwise known as the National Cambodian Heritage Museum up in the Chicago Lincoln Square neighborhood. Um, Kem and I work as board member colleagues. Kem is the uh, is currently the board president for our museum. So uh, thank you so much for joining me today. And um, it's been an honor to have you on and to talk about your work within our Cambodian and greater Asian American community, uh, especially for this uh, meaningful second season. So I would love for you to uh, have you introduce yourself. Hey, Rani. Um, yeah, thanks for having me here. Uh, so my name is Kim, uh, Kim Ray Kuhn. Um, I go by Kim, and um, I have uh, been involved with the Cambodia Association of Illinois as well as the National Cambodian Heritage Museum here in Chicago um, since its beginnings. Um, I currently serve as the board president for the museum. Thank you. And so before we begin, uh, the theme is 1975. And when I say the year 1975, what comes to mind? Well, for us, when we think about 1975, there's a very specific date that demarcates the beginning of um, the four-year regime that impacted um, many Cambodian Americans today, um, and and that was the day that it, the Pol Pot regime had taken over the capital of Phnom Penh, um, and it marked uh, the beginning of their uh, year zero, the attempt to go back to an agricultural society and um, reset uh, what is Cambodia. And when you think about that particular time and 
1975, for so many uh, Southeast Asians, uh, specifically when we're talking in the Cambodian context, it led to the wave of this mass exodus of refugees, uh, where we started seeing people flee the homeland and going into Western countries like Canada, France, the United States. And I know, Cam, uh, you speak from the 1.5 and among also with the second generation folks, a lot of us did not live in 1975, but what do you think about when you think of the mass exodus of refugees, including your family members who had to survive the refugee camps and then uh, reselling into the United States? Uh, what goes through your mind when you start to reflect back in your childhood and the early years uh, as your parents were selling into the US? Well, what's unique about our experiences when you think about it, growing up, every single person that I met um, who was of Cambodian heritage or, or descent um, knew somebody who was directly impacted um, by the genocide, right? They count how many family members they've lost by, on their fingers. Um, and so that was a common bond that tied everyone together was you know, one of the first questions people asked when they met each other was, how many did you lose? And so that's the beginning of a conversation, recounting uh, brothers and sisters and parents whom they were separated from, um, either never saw from again, um, never heard of, um, or at some point was later confirmed um, that they had not survived uh, the genocide, right? Um, and so as a child growing up and hearing these stories, that was the reality of the, the world and the community that I lived in was everybody had been impacted by the war. Um, and growing up here, it was very mixed in terms of who was willing to share those stories and who was not ready to open up or share those stories. And um, as I've gotten older and um, entered adulthood, that's when I've been focusing a lot more on trying to uncover and unravel what that has meant for my generation, for myself, and what that means for my children. Because I think about how the trauma that I may have experienced in childhood was a direct impact of my parents' own trauma. Um, so in order for me to heal, it requires me to have a broader depth and understanding of their generation and what they went through as well. And growing up, uh, when did you start hearing the stories about your own family's survival? It was always in bits and pieces. So it was never, to this day, I've never gotten a complete story. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard bits and pieces from my aunt who was married to my uncle, whom my um, mom and her brothers and sisters came here as a family of five that had survived um, without their parents. Um, but they never talked about my, uh, my grandparents who didn't make it and they had mm -hmm. died before the war actually. So the five siblings was able to survive together on their own and had developed a very tight knit 
bond and it, it's that same bond that got them through survival in America and living in America. But um, when it came to hearing the stories of what their life was like during the war, um, to this day, it's something that I don't have clarity on. I think when we hear stories, I mean, for myself, I remembered at 14 years old in 1997 when Pol Pot was seen on live television. I think it was through ABC News. And I remember coming downstairs and my dad was watching very quietly. And he was with my cousin who was visiting from out of town. And then he started to talk slowly about what had happened. And I felt that reopened up a lot of wounds for him that I don't think he ever recovered from still to this day. And and sometimes, and I've heard this from other folks too in our community that you hear our parents, our family survival through bits and pieces. Sometimes it comes through anger. Like I know when I fought with my dad as a teenager to um, into my college years, when that would happen, he would weaponize his own experiences saying, well, I lost 30 members of my family in those arguments. And sometimes it was so heated that histories would come out as a result of me and him arguing together. Now, when you started hearing those bits and pieces, did it also tap into your curiosity? I think you've already alluded to that, but did it start to tap into your curiosity that I need to discover what has happened? Um, I need to figure out what was going on uh, with my family, but also what really happened during uh, the 70s before I was born. So we hear a lot about mental health in our communities, right? But what does that really mean? And for me, when I was growing up, it was um, that manifestation of um, self-doubt, of um, deprecation, of um, you kind of getting used to community members, family members putting each other down all the time, and we really weren't uplifting each other. We weren't really supporting each other. There's a lot of sabotage going on. And for a while, I thought that this was the reality of who everyone was in the world. Like that was my world. And mm-hmm. um, as an adult, as a young adult, and starting to venture out of the community and out of the family, I realized, wait a minute, this is not how the rest of the world operates. This is not normal. Um, when I was growing up was a, in a very dysfunctional household. Um, and it made me realize I needed to have compassion and that in order for me to understand my history, my family history, my community's history, and to begin the healing process, that I really need to go back and understand the history of what happened in Cambodia and their experiences um, to contextualize that. And for me, I think that is sort of the saving grace or the pathway to healing, um, I guess the salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, because without understanding that history in that context, then I can't break free from that cycle. Um, and that's the same thing for why I need to be involved and be proactive in that healing process because if I don't, then I have a very high risk of repeating those same mistakes and 
passing on that trauma to my children. So that's why it's really important for me. Yeah, it, it really rings true. Um, because when I look back on my own um, young adulthood, I'm, I'm in my 30s, I'm, I'm in my mid 30s, of close to the same age as you are. And being able to not understand my history was a challenge because when we don't know our uh, frame of reference, we don't know how to talk to our parents or to our family members when they are being triggered. And I know when a lot of us second generation, 1.5 second generation folks are adapting to a new school environment into a community that our families don't have uh, the blueprint for or an understanding of how to navigate being in a school system that doesn't understand our cultural needs and our family's trauma, we do walk in with a question mark of who are we? Where do we belong, right? And, and I know when you just talked about this idea of what do we do when we don't know our history and what it does to us. And, I, and for a lot of our community folks, um, some have struggled as a result of it. Um, a lot of the refugee resettlement was sent, uh, put us or in our communities in um, high poverty areas or in very small rural communities away from the rest of their own communities. So there is this path of where do I belong? Where do I fit in? How do I survive, right? Yeah, I'm just thinking about my own experiences because when we originally came here from the United States, we settled in the uptown neighborhood and that entry for many immigrants and refugees during that time. Um, but a very conscious decision that my parents had made early on was that they didn't want us to live in the so-called ghetto. They want us to um, be away from the Cambodian community so that I would be forced to learn English, I'd be forced to assimilate. And so we did move out into the suburbs, had a very different experience, but that, that also meant that I was disconnected from my community. And I um, grew up in the Southwest side of Chicago, predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. I was one of several Asian families that was going to school there. Um, and even though there are a lot of um, things where I identify with being a person of color, being part of a broader minority community, um, there was a huge culture shock when I went to college and realized that um, I was the minority um, within the minority and uh, going to a mostly white university. And so um, that was a big culture shock. And, uh, and stepping outside of that. Mm. Yeah, I, I also, like you, grew up in a mostly white suburban neighborhood outside of Chicago, and my dad, at the same time, said, um, you need to learn English better. You need to uh, not hang around with the wrong people. You've got to do better than this person in our community. So there was a lot of self-loathing mm -hmm. of myself, but also loathing of our own communities as a result right. of that, right? And because we're conditioned to learn that, well, don't be like them. Don't be like this person. And, and unfortunately, the stereotypes of our own community members of being gangbangers uh, was something that never 
disappeared. And it also reinforced a lot of this division within our own communities. And more hurtful because our communities came in as survivors, uh, escaping near death. And here we are having to still deal with the unhealed wounds uh, years later that we're still not trusting our own communities because our country was engaged in a civil war, right? Right, but again, it goes back to that history to understand that history, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I grew up where I didn't like being around Cambodians. I, the reality of it, like I was always um, triggered every time I was around other Cambodians because there it was just so much negativity around it. And um, but going back and learning and the history and, and part of what I did in in high school was. Um, to do my whole research project and understanding uh, the Cambodian genocide and uh, what led to the war. And so that gave me that historical perspective and um, it gave me an appreciation of who I, who I was, where I came from. But you know, when you talk about also what's taught to you and the idea of um, people who are deserving or not deserving, right? So you, you look at the issue of deportation that's been happening in our communities recently. There are those within our own community who believe that, well, they deserve it. You know, yes. we came to this country, um, which was a privilege that was granted to us. Um, and now we've got this second chance at, at creating new opportunities in life. And so if they mess up that opportunity, then they deserve to go back. They deserve to go back and be deported back to Cambodia, right? But then if you look a little bit further and understand the history, you also understand that the reason why, part of the reason why there was a refugee crisis, why there was war, um, was because Cambodia was caught between two um, superpowers. And that was uh, China and the US. And you look at, the battle for Southeast Asia um, over ideas over um, you know North and South Vietnam, um, the secret illegal bombing of Cambodia and the U.S.'s role in it. The U.S. had a responsibility in that as well, and and that's something that a lot of people within our community don't like to talk about, right? right. And so when we think about the politics of it and why we're here in the US to begin with as a result of war. Um, and once here, we are without resources, we're in urban areas or we're isolated um, with minimal resources. Um, we're sort of put in the ghetto where um, we're in areas that are um, high in poverty. And then you wonder why these children grow up to join gangs, right? Um, or go on to make mistakes that ultimately um, land them in jail. And again, because of US policies, um, when they may have already done time, um, served their time in the criminal justice system, um, they're basically facing 
deportation as a result of policies um, after the 1996 uh, Criminalization Act that basically said, you know what, we're going to go ahead and deport you if you commit a criminal offense, um, and that this is retroactive. So even though you may have established a new life, um, you have family and your kids, all of a sudden you find out because you got citizenship status, now you're eligible for deportation. So these, there's this tumbling down effect mm -hmm. in terms of how these policies have impacted us in a negative way um, and we've been having to navigate that but then like we see that within our own community because people don't understand the context and don't understand the history um, are not as supportive when they see a fellow Southeast Asian being deported and they, mm -hmm. it's this mentality of well there's the deserving and non-deserving right Right, absolutely, and and actually, I was talking with Salong Chun, who uh, is also part of the Kamai Anti-Deportation Advocacy Group, as well as uh, Von Wen, who is a Vietnamese American immigration attorney, and we both, you know, talked about this because, uh, as you uh, pointed out, uh, you're talking about Khmer folks, Khmer American folks, or Southeast Asian folks who committed minor crimes, maybe like stealing uh, when they were 15, 16 years old, for example. 30 years later, they already had their families, they've been going to college, and they've already paid their debt to society by serving time, paying fines. And yet, here we are in 2020, having to break apart families, which also goes into the cycle of this is exactly what happened when the Khmer Rouge took over. Families were separated. So we're seeing that cycle happen yet again. And then putting those folks who do not have any memory of Cambodia or actually were born in Thai refugee camps or in Malaysia and being sent to a place that they have no physical, emotional, mental connection to, in a sense. So it's almost as if like you've had some folks who are who have health problems still getting detained, and I think Salong told uh, told me that one of them was diabetic and ended up dying uh, once um, they came back to Cambodia, and so we're seeing that cycle happen yet again. And I think for our own communities, what's also lost is that we we have we are people who are going through the deportation process, there's a lot of shame in talking about it because our community has been conditioned to say, well, you deserve it. If you did the crime, why should I care about you? So that kind of mentality doubles down. And luckily, um, community leaders uh, are starting to emerge and make it uh, safe uh, for folks to talk about their stories, right? I mean, this is how we can help to destigmatize this topic and know that it really does matter uh, to all of our communities, that, that deportations do nothing to create safety for us as a whole. It only uh, reinforces uh, danger and fear, right? Yeah, so I actually, you know, I'm thinking right now, um, I do have a family member that was, um, had gone through the deportation process 
um, it was actually on my husband's side of the family. And uh, when this individual <coughs> went through the deportation process, his he's our generation. His mom was the one that was helping to fight for his uh, stay of deportation. And ultimately he was deported back to Cambodia. Mm. For her, it was a huge trigger for her because the Cambodia that she knows, the Cambodia that she left, she had been so traumatized by that the idea of her son returning back to this country whom she had risked her life to get him out of um, was devastating for her. Mm. And she couldn't bring herself uh, to even imagine even returning to Cambodia. So she, for her, his deportation meant separation forever um, mm. or indefinitely because she wasn't going to set foot back in Cambodia again. There had been uh, too much trauma um, that she couldn't bring herself to do that. So, mm -hmm. um, so I've witnessed that separation and that had impacted them. And then on the other side, um, here in Chicago, when I was involved with the Cambodian Association, um, I was coordinating a teen girls group. And I um, remember working with one of the girls there. Um, she had actually reached out to me within the last couple of years to ask for help because her brother was going through deportation. This would be the second one in the family. Um, so you think about a family who has already gone through so much trauma. Um, and we had had a conversation about what her family's options were and whether or not she wanted to fight it um, through the legal system and whether or not she wanted to um, organize and um, have more of a public um, outcry as far as what was going on because a lot of this was because of to the particular situation where he wasn't even born in Cambodia. There was no documentation of somebody born in a refugee mm. camp. Um, mm. And the only thing in reality was that he was actually born in, in the Philippines. But because wow. they didn't have any documentation to support that, they were going to automatically deport him based on his parents' country of origin. Oh, um, wow. And so this was really traumatizing for the family. And oh, my goodness. At the end of the day, though, the mom couldn't bring herself to make the issue public. Uh, part of it, it's, I'm sure that shame, um, the dishonor that's been brought upon a family and not wanting to sort of air your dirty laundry or put yourself out there. And so um, last I heard, he is currently still in the courts right now um, and has not been deported yet. But you think about what trauma that family has already gone through. And this is here in our own backyard. Absolutely. And it's terrifying. It's, it's, and we're seeing this happen so much under the Trump administration. And it has only continued to accelerate and become more aggressive. Um, and at the same time, I will also say that I'm also comforted that there are more people now supporting the anti-deportation uh, more than it has been several years ago. And we're seeing groups, uh, C organizations like CRAC, S-E-A-R-A-C, uh, which is a Southeast Asian uh, organization, 
helping to amplify that message of the deportations because deportations just don't just don't affect undocumented folks but they also affect people who have legal status to be in this country and could not get citizenship because of their own record that had not been expunged so i'm i do I do thank you so much for bringing this uh, conversation and your own experience into this because it is part of the cycle that we are seeing right now as we speak. And to transition um, to what I would love to talk about is, I've known your work through uh, the Cambodian Museum as a board president, uh, being a board president, um, and then also your recent election as uh, a as a board member for the Skokie Park District, which is right outside of Chicago in the Chicago North Shore area. And you became the first Cambodian American woman elected into public office uh, a few years back. So, which is just amazing, but also long overdue, right? And, and you, and before we go into that, I've also noticed uh, from working with you that leadership uh, leadership has always been something that have always attracted you and um, being in leadership positions, working in organizations, volunteering yourself um, to get involved within not just the Khmer American communities but also in uh, Asian Pacific Islander communities, uh, working with other women of color. I was wondering what led you to get involved in leadership uh, roles. It's an interesting question. Um, so I'm very quiet. <laughs> I am an introvert. Um, I never saw myself being in a leadership position. Um, each and every time I have stepped up, it's because I've been called into action. Um, a very core tenement of who I am and what I do is it's based on principles of social justice and equity. Um, having personally experienced trauma, having people close to me who have reached out in their time of need and having to help battle it within the social service system, within our public um, systems, it made me realize that there was a need out there. Um, it was part of the reason why I uh, received my education, um, sort of foundation in social work when I went to college. Um, I, I felt that calling and then so that sort of introduced me to the world of uh, nonprofit and community organizing as well, working for a broad immigrant-led coalition here in Chicago. And that experience exposed me to what it meant to learn to find your voice and to fight for the things that you believe in. And part of it is understanding what leadership is and that it comes in many shapes and form, um, especially for myself being a woman and being a minority as well, that I don't necessarily have to be the loudest yelling and screaming, but 
I can recognize my own strengths and understand that I am somebody who's compassionate, who is empathetic, that can hear and understand where people are struggling, where their pain points are, and then to figure out what are action steps, what are solutions that we can work together across different communities. A lot of these issues that we're dealing with are not in isolation, that um, it's something that is a common thread throughout a broader community that brings us together. And so those are the things that have called me forth into action. Um, it's helped me to build a broader network of coalition of people that I can call on as allies. Um, and so I think that sort of naturally create this space for me when I um, had taken some time off to focus on family life and decide that was when I wanted to get back into the community. Um, the president of the Skokie Park District at the time had reached out to me and told me that he was looking to retire and had invited me to consider running for public office and in particular for his seat that was opening up. Um, and so that was something that I had never considered before. Um, there was a call to action and I thought about it and I consulted with close friends and family and I decided to go ahead and take that step not knowing what I was entering into. Um, and it wasn't until election night that it finally dawned on me that not only was I the first Cambodian American elected in Illinois, but I was also the first Cambodian American woman elected to any public position mm. in this country. Um, and over the following weeks, when people reached out to me from all over the country and all over the world, actually, mm. um, to acknowledge me for that, I realized I had also stepped into this role where I, I guess, be I became somebody, um, I created a space that many in our community haven't thought about, right? Um, and that was when it really dawned on me how representation matters, that who sits at the table, who, it, who you have that um, is leading the way, paving the way um, for other people. So my hope is that I'm not the, the only one, that I am the first of many. Um, and I've been following some exciting races of other Cambodian American women who have also been running for public office as well um, mm -hmm. in their local areas. And so I hope that um, we continue to get our voices out there um, because it also matters to the next generation, right? And so mm -hmm. like when my children looks at me or like I, you know, I have nieces that are in preschool that sees my picture on the um the park district facilities like that's, that's my aunt or that's so my mom cool. oh that's um, so cool we didn't have that growing up we didn't no. have any role models like we we had images of war we had images of Pol Pot we had you know or we have these image or we get these paintings of Uncle Wat where we don't even know what that is until you've actually gone to the Cambodia uh, to the country and actually seen what Uncle Wat is in person you don't know what that looks like um that we are sort of void of having that um, leadership role model to look in, up to, right? And so, um, so I see that as a huge opportunity to to broaden um, engagement and how we 
identify as Cambodian Americans so that we're not defined just by trauma, um, that this is a place for healing and that of inspiration and that we can uh, strengthen our network. And uh, with being the, being the first of being the first Cambodian American woman elected in a public office and considering that being the first can also feel very lonely, uh, especially when you don't have other folks that you can confide in that could understand what you're going through. I was wondering if you could take us through the experience of what were the barriers like when you are coming in as a fresh face, as a person who had not been into politics um, before to go into this uh, new, um, and go, to go into this new transition, right? And knowing that you don't have many people who look like you to talk to, how do you reconcile and how do you overcome or process this um, new reality? So, um, because there's a lot to carry on, especially when our community looks to you and sees, well, here's our new leader. You know, here's a person who's now breaking the glass ceiling. But then when you're dealing with a lot of the old guard still in, still in place, it can get very frustrating. And sometimes it can really, uh, it can really be very difficult for uh, people who are doing it for the first time to feel discouraged, right? So I was wondering what that process was like as you were getting into that transition. So one thing is change doesn't happen overnight. I recognize that and it's slow and steady. Um, soon after I was elected, I was invited to participate as part of a, a national network, um, the New American Leaders. And that introduced me to a whole other world of elected officials. Um, who are first times in their own communities. These are new Americans um, who are run, who have been elected into public office as um, state senators, trustees, uh, working with municipal governments and local councils um, from all areas of the world who are now here um, as new Americans. And so that really was really inspiring to know that I am the perhaps a first in my community, but there are so many other firsts that we can celebrate throughout the country of new Americans who are stepping up and showing what participative democracy looks like, um, where representation matters. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect is, is finding grounding, um, making sure that I um, am continually surrounding myself with people who I can turn to for support um, to talk about things that are important to me that are things that I might be struggling with and trying to get a second opinion and, and figure out. Um, one of the things I did before I became elected was I had established a Cambodian Women's Network. And so they have been a tremendous resource in terms of um, being my sounding board and helping me to um, navigate my way as well. And, and that's also created opportunities for me to continue to stay in touch and understand issues that are still impacting our community today and hearing from them, getting their feedback, um, having my eyes and ears on the ground 
Um, so that's been really helpful as well. Um, and and at the end of the day, it's my family. They've been my, um, my rock. They've been uh, my support. I wouldn't be able to do this without them, my children, my husband. And so um, they're the ones who, again, keep me grounded so that as I'm still learning and venturing out there and figuring out what's next for me, um, I don't have the answers and I'm looking for more people to join me. Um, like I said, I have, I've been watching some of the races that have been happening throughout the country to see who that next person is going to be um, and hoping that we can continue to build upon that. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And I'm so glad that you are working to uh, connect with other uh, women of color, fellow Asian folks who've got into office and to see how we can continue to build off of that and how do we get more people that look like us who care about our communities and know how to work in solidarity with other communities as well to make America what it should be rather than going back to what it was, right? And, um, I also wanted to touch on the Cambodian Museum experience because a couple of years ago, you became the board president. I became a board member right at the same time. And we had not met uh, prior to that. It was actually uh, through Elizabeth Kale who brought me into the museum. And I had not been connected to the Cambodian community for really that long. I mean, it was just, I gotta say it was two years, if that. And, you know, being a part of the board, especially for a museum that's been around for about 15 years, 16 years now, we are the only museum in the United States currently that outside of Cambodia that is centered on on the Khmer culture, but also the history of the Khmer genocide, uh, the killing fields, um, which is what it's known. And it, there's a sense of responsibility to make sure that that history is visible, that we are able to have a space that honors uh, those who did not survive, but also our survivors. And I think the last couple of years I've seen, you know, we, the whole board uh, currently as we speak are our second generation, right? Our older uh, survivors, um, the adult survivors of the Khmer genocide, uh, starting from 1975, when I go back, if they're 20 years old in 1975, they're 65. So they are retiring. They're in retirement age. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them are transitioning away. And now it's up to us to carry that legacy, to preserve that history and advance our own history as well. So with the museum that we have here, what do you see um, in your own experience? And how do you hopefully, um, or how do you look to make sure that we as a community, make sure that places like this that share our own history are preserved? And can, and can continue so that way uh, younger folks are able to talk about uh, or able to ask questions about what had happened during the 70s. Um, so 
I mean, if you think about it, it's the only place right now where families can go to multiple generations and through music, through art, through culture, um, through history, walking through and looking at the exhibit or visiting the memorial wall that we get that history. Um, and again, it goes back to like, you know, who we are as people, right? So typically we get, if anything, a one paragraph history lesson in history in high school, that, yeah. right? Um, where people think that Cambodia and Vietnam are the same and there's so much history there. Um, or that Cambodia is even a country, because I think when I was in my high school, Cambodia was not even brought up. I didn't learn about right. it until I was actually in college, just by accident. I went from having to explain to people where Cambodia is on the map to um, Angelina Jolie putting Cambodia on the map. Um, so that was a different experience. Um, so yeah, so... It, <laughs> It happens in bits and pieces, like it, it doesn't happen overnight, right? So even when I got my daughter involved with the dance classes, um, I really introducing her to the culture and her history. Um, we had tried early on where Khmer was her first language and we only spoke Khmer around her in her first couple of years of life. And it gets harder to maintain as they get older. Um, especially once they start going to school and my own Khmer, it's limited to conversational Khmer. So it, it's very different. Um, so we try to expose her to different aspects of the culture. Um, and one day I realized, even though I was on the board of the museum, uh, we were looking, I was going through some pictures or looking at our website and my daughter asked me, mommy, what's that? And I realized she was pointing to the memorial mm. and I thought to myself, I have never taken her there. I've never actually, mm. in all the times that we've been there, shown her the memorial. And and it's things where like, you, you have to also think about what's age appropriate and how to introduce that history to them. Um, but it, it becomes, this cultural center, um, this heritage um, center that I want to continue to bring my kids to, to know, to let them know that they have a place that they belong to um, and that they have a place here in America. That, and, and that's what I teach my children is like, your heritage is Cambodian, but you're also American. You're born here and I want you to own that so that there's no one that's going to question you later on and saying you're not American enough mm -hmm. because you, you are American, right? So that goes into the complexity of what that American identity is. Um, and I think for our generation, we are carrying the torch that our elders have created. They started the Cambodia Association of Illinois at a time of need when direct services were required to support refugees and um, provide them basic resources such as um, housing, housing, right, language access, right, um, interpretation and 
um, getting them from places to places. And so um, right now, as our community is more spread out, um, they may have access to more resources. They've been a bit more established. They have homes um, that they may have purchased. And now it's more about making sure that they have a place to heal and that they have a place that they can continue the building on that heritage um, so that the next generation understands that history and understands their roots and who they are um, and has not doesn't lose touch with that right mm-hmm. um, but I think a big part of it's it's healing because we've spent so much time surviving that people haven't really had time to reflect back and and heal that's still required that's still happening in our communities right now um, we still see families that are triggered um, they're going through PTSD or depression um, and may have suppressed it all these years and it's starting to just come up now. So um, these are things that we're still dealing with. Mm. When I look at the Cambodian Museum, and I know we've been uh, sharing this um, as a group here, I'm, I'm very encouraged when we're starting to see more people in our age group, the millennials and then Generation Z folks starting to take an interest and learning about their family's history. And what we are still struggling with is there are folks in our age group and younger that don't know about their parents' history. I still have my cousins from my mom's side of the family who's Vietnamese that are still trying to understand uh, their parents' history, which they had never asked before. And I think having folks who are in our age group being able to share their journey allows folks to start asking questions about what happened. I think the museum space is very critical for that because uh, one of our uh, one of the staff members from CAI, um, Chun, he'll volunteer uh, to give tours, and he would bring families, uh, Kamai families, in to do a tour. And there is a halfway point, and the exhibit is quite small, but the halfway point when it gets to the refugee, um, well, not the refugee, but when it comes into the labor camps that uh, that they had to endure through the Khmer Rouge, the parents start to talk about it. And it would get very emotional because to walk into that space, it is very challenging, right? It's, it's very hard to hear that history um, that those parents had to go through. And then when they go into that experience of being in those labor camps, Chun would always say that every time, that's when you start getting the families to talk and then the children to listen. And having that as an opportunity to understand why their parents may be different than their American parent, their American parents who acted differently towards their children. And what's really nice about the museum, and I would, tell anyone who haven't been to the museum uh, that live in Chicago or coming to Chicago um, that it is a great experience to understand that history, the stories um, that had happened during that particular period. And then towards the end, as you mentioned with that memorial, when you get into the heaviness of that whole labor camp and the deaths and the executions and uh, the starvations that have happened, the memorial is a uh, place where 
folks can honor their loved ones, but also to find peace. There's a sense of hope that, yes, yet even though this dark history has affected us, we're still here and we're still shining our light and moving towards a path that's compassionate, that is uh, loving, and that can help heal our survivors, right? So uh, yeah, I think the last couple of years, what I've seen is that we're seeing more folks who are not coming in on a daily basis. We've had some storytelling workshops, uh, credit to Ada uh, Cheng for bringing her storytelling shows and hers being a non-Kamai person. When I saw her a couple years ago telling stories, I asked her to uh, tell at, to do her solo show to the museum because even though as a non-Cambodian and as a person who had not been a refugee, um, she talks about the immigrant experience. She talks about the gender uh, the gender, the the xenophobia, the racism that we all experience as Cambodian Americans uh, being in this country. Um, what that has done is we're seeing more of our Cambodian members tell their stories for the first time. And we're starting to see uh, renewed interest in our cultural arts. Punisa Pov, who has been spearheading the cultural arts. She's a singer. She's a musician. She has been guiding this program. And I don't know what we would do without her, but she's been helping our community take pride in our arts, but also to use the Cambodian traditions of music and dance and writing to uh, help heal our community. Yeah, I go back and think about when we had the Day of Remembrance and we had the women's choir perform. Mm. Um, they've been learning to sing uh, with Nisa and the woman had commented that she used to have trouble sleeping and since being part of the women's choir, she realizes that she can use song as a way to calm herself and um, help her sleep. And so Nisa has been really great in terms of opening the bridge and connecting the different generations um, from survivors to our generation and um, the the younger children working with them and teaching them traditional uh, Cambodian instruments. And um, she's just done a, a remarkable job. And it's, I think it's just because of her experience, because of her firsthand experience growing up in Cambodia, um, having understood what life is like there in modern times and um, but also being exposed to the master musicians and being able to bring that heritage here to America and connect the generations has, has really been remarkable. And I think it's been a true asset for the museum. Yeah, and so honored that we have been blessed to be a witness to this journey um, of our own community members using the museum space as their own way, again, of healing and to use it as a way to empower our community to 
continue to do important things uh, that go beyond the survival of the genocide, but to show the importance of our traditions, of our arts, and what we are creating uh, on a daily basis. Um, now, looking back on all of your experiences, especially with you know the Cambodian Museum, with you know being in the Skokie Park District, uh, being actively involved in a in APIA uh, leadership roles and being with the Cambodian Women's Network, what do you wish you had learned then that you know now? When? <laughs> um, what do you mean? What it? What are you? Well, as far as well, I should um, elaborate a little further because when you go into leadership roles, or especially when you are the first. Um, Cambodian American woman elected into office, right? Or uh, when you go into a leadership role as a woman, what is it that you have wished you uh, had learned then? Or what, what, what is it that you wish could be better moving forward uh, that you would hope to impart, especially from your own experiences? I don't know if I'm making any sense there. <laughs> I, I apologize. I'm no, I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that I didn't know stepping into it. Um, running um, for a public office, even for a nonpartisan position, I it was the, the election I went through was the first contested election in, in over 10 years. And so... Um, one thing that I learned was um, that I have to work three times as hard as any other candidate because I am Asian American and I am a woman and that it's harder for people to recognize my name and um, know who I am and, and because I don't have that easily recognizable name. Um, <clears throat> that was something I earned learned early on and I wouldn't have been able to figure that out if I didn't have my friend and mentor, um, Josita Morita, who I always give her credit for because she really um, has been an inspiration and uh, a friend and um, helped me to navigate that, realizing that the pathway for us is different from everyone else because we do have to work two, three times as hard as everyone else. Um, in order to to get recognized. Um, there's not that many of us out there to begin with. Um, and then I'd say it's staying above the fray. Um, when things can go negative, making sure that you stay focused, stay true to your values, stay true to who you are and your messaging and um, think about the long term and not get distracted by um, the things that may detract you along the way. Mm. And for your children, I know your two kids. Um, I don't know how old, how old how old are they now. They're seven and nine now. Yeah, unbelievable. Because I remember when they were like they were four younger. and six when I was running. Yeah, yeah. and 
it, it just amazes me. So when they start to see the magnitude of your work, has it started to sink in a little bit for them? Are they understanding oh <laughs> the reality that you're working with now? Because I know that you've been taking your kids to cultural classes. You've been having these discussions with them. So, What's been their take? <laughs> What's been their reaction to what you've been teaching them? Their reality is very different from my reality growing up, um, for sure. They are growing up where their mom is an elected official and you know, they're also growing up in that age of Facebook and social media. So they kind of see some of the stuff that's out there. Um, and so my son thinks he's famous um, <laughs> by association. Um, my daughter, I remember early on, had asked me to join her on her uh, school field trip as the commissioner rather than his, her mother. Um, wow. And then when they go to the pool in the summertime, my son makes the big deal and announces to everybody my mom is the vice president of the Skokie Park District and I have to keep him from like screaming and telling everybody that um but I also realized that their reality is very different from what I grew up in right I didn't have any of that stuff um I grew up in a very um sheltered household um we didn't do any of these extracurricular activities because the only thing I was responsible for was going to school, coming home, taking care of my younger brother and sister, and that was it. We weren't allowed to do extracurricular activities. So one of the things I do in terms of engaging people and trying to broaden the participation of folks um, that are involved in the park district is that the reality of what we grew up in where we were struggling to survive, our parents are struggling to survive, now is our time and our opportunity in our generation to make sure that our children have a different experience. And, and that's creating these opportunities where we're challenging them to step outside of their comfort zone, step outside of their um, normal small world and, and give them that exposure to a completely different experience so that they have options when they grow up and that they're not living in fear um because that's how i grew up and i grew up where my parents were afraid of everything um and so now my kids are exposed and you know they're learning how to swim whenever it's like i'm afraid of drowning they're they're excelling in it so um it's definitely already had an impact for them and for my immediate family members um but this is a lesson i learned and i carry with me as i talk to other families and i think about how do we engage and bring other um, families uh, participate in, you know, basic park district activities and programs because it begins with families first, right? Um, and this is a vehicle for me to um, to understand where the immigrant refugee community is coming from and how do we engage them and find different ways of engaging them so that their children has the same opportunities. Mm. And when you look into 2020, like we're now into um, deep into 20, well, we're not deep into 2020 yet, but but as we go further into that year and with the election year and, and what have you, what are your ambitions uh, for this year? It's a very busy year for me. Um, currently I'm participating as part of IWO, which is the Illinois Women Leadership Training Academy. Um, it's a 
really great network um, of female Democratic elected officials here in Illinois. Um, we're trying to strengthen representation um, as far as female representation here um, in public office. Um, so I'm going through a training program with them and then I've just got so much on my plate as far as my involvement with the museum and just life and work and children. Most people don't realize it, but I do have a full-time job that pays me <laughs> outside of all my other extracurriculars. Um, so it, it's just trying to find balance and all that. Yeah, I it, it's kind of amazes me like how much how many hats you wear and and the fact that it's hard for you to even take them off because you can't take off uh, being the mom hat you can't necessarily take off you know your responsibilities um, to the Cambodian community do the museum and do um, the city of Skokie but it's finding the balance right it's uh, it's also finding um, what is the what is the um, optimum uh, range for you what would work for you that will help you function and be at your best right um, I also wanted to ask you a question I'm not sure if this is the best question to ask but do you see yourself running for a higher public office in the future I mean you don't have to answer that if you don't feel comfortable but I, I get the sense that knowing you the last couple of years <laughs> I can't see you just settling uh, down, but I don't want to put words into your mouth here, so I just kind of want to leave it there. So I've been told by many close friends um, that I should, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I am on a journey right now to figure out what that would look like in a way that is true to who I am and um, what opportunities are out there. So. Um, I am in exploration right now, but I don't know what that looks like. Mm. Yeah, I, I want to say, like, as we wrap up, that it's been an honor to see your work up close and personal. And I know that being a board president of the Cambodian Museum isn't an easy responsibility because we are a small organization. And, and that also means trying to make the museum visible but also to make sure that our community nationwide and even worldwide uh, understand that there is a space that it does exist and that it's meant for all Cambodians uh, living in America who are living in, in the diaspora and um, for Cambodians who are uh, visiting uh, America. So it's a it's a thankless job sometimes but it's also one that carries so much meaning and i'm very honored that you have uh helped me uh become better in that role and sometimes i know i drive everyone crazy which is <laughs> natural which i agitate people i am a gemini so all i do is agitate people whether it's intentional or not uh, but i thank you for at least you know uh, allowing me to grow uh, and to see the importance of that role and our community. So I'm always thankful that for the time that you've always taken me to step aside and uh, and to uh, really share your own experiences. So that has always been valued. But I've also uh, really, it, it's been great to see what you've been doing. I mean, you've created the Kamai Leadership Alliance. Uh, you've been working with other Kamai leaders on a national level. Um, 
and learning how to bring them together to see how we or how they can also uplift one another, right? So to see what you've been doing has been very valued. So I really thank you for uh, being on this episode and for sharing your wisdom and for really uh, continuing to uplift uh, our community, but also with Asian Americans and uh, uh, POC folks everywhere that um, people have the opportunities to become leaders. And you don't have to be loud and uh, provocative to be a leader. It, it comes from you know, just having something to say and what needs to be done, right? I'm not saying not to be loud, but there's a time and place for that. So, yes. um, one thing I want to add is, you know, I, I go back and I think about when we were trying to figure out the vision that we want to build for the museum. And as somebody who's from the community has lived and understand sort of the nuances and the trauma and, you know, the experience growing up um, here in America and understanding that what it was like coming from a place of, of anger mm -hmm. and frustration um, as well. And then to, to leave the community and to come back and to try to focus on healing and having that be the focal point. And when those moments do arise where there's a choice and there's an opportunity between being upset and angry and trying to figure out how to, um, manage that or um, choosing to focus instead of um, looking at something long-term and what healing looks like and what growing looks like and and thinking about building those bridges, right? And so um, I, I think that's a place where I'm coming from right now where I'm tired of being angry and I'm looking at how do we begin to build those bridges how do we begin to heal the wounds not only for ourselves but of the people that we're interacting with and engaging with um so that's sort of my vision for how i move forward right now and, and sort of um and, and you know in other areas of my life and you know part of the reason why i'm involved with um the park district right now um I, i'm in a community that is uh minority majority there the Cambodian community in Skokie is very small um but I got elected um, by the general population and and I'm there for the community and and it's always about building bridges and um making sure that we're there for the community as a whole and so um that's the place that I want to come from is that that vision of hope um and of continuing to build um because i'm tired of being angry and i'm tired of feeling like we can't get anything done mm. uh, and that's a great way to uh to also uh for our own community that has been struggling um uh, to heal that this is the kind of mindset that at least helps us to put aside the anger and to understand the uh, the greater purpose of of 
how we take care of ourselves in the process and how we take care of one another and taking care of each other does not come to anger. It comes from a place of self-love and love for other folks. So very well put. And I want to say thank you so much for being on the, on the show. And also the fact that you are fighting a very bad cold for the past uh, two weeks now. So, and just want to say thank you for, still being able to brave through it and being able to give us a really um, good insight about your own experiences. I am very thankful and I cannot wait to see what uh, the rest of 2020 and going beyond will look like for you. I'll be watching very closely. Thank you, Randy. Have a good one. Me too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunmy Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunmy underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Thank you.